How are you? You're good? I'm glad. It's been quite an exciting week. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're reading from the New American Standard Version today. And the beginning of chapter 11 is entitled, Christian Order in my Bible. Now, I don't always like these man-made arbitrary chapter breaks and their titles because they're not part of the Word of God, and they can limit the reader's thought. However, in today's case, I actually really like it because it, it links two seemingly random things that Paul puts together in chapter 11 that don't always seem related. Are we there yet? We're there? Okay, good. And while you're reading this with me, please ask yourself, what does this have to do with Christian order or with Christian unity. Chapter 11. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while, play, while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she, is, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the image and glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord... Neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. So, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her? for her hair is given to her as a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of gods. Wow, that really is strange. It's kind of awkward. Uh, and uh, we don't really need to understand exactly what it means. If you want to know, I can you know, preach a sermon on it, but only by popular demand. The important thing we need to see here is in verse... Uh, 16, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Because he's really, really, really trying to maintain Christian unity here. 
And let's keep that in mind as we keep reading on, because in Paul's thought, this is directly related to the Lord's Supper. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not, the, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are gathered today to celebrate and praise you for the gift of your word to us. Thank you for your word. Please let us humbly submit to your judgment in it so that we may walk more fully in your ways. Amen. Today is Communion Sunday, and I want to thank this church for taking communion so seriously. It is, it is, an, it is a solemn occasion, and we should undertake it with a repentant heart. What strikes me about this passage, however, is that Paul's exhortation for us to, to do it with a repentant heart and seriously is in the context of a much bigger agenda for him. He wants each and every one of us to take the cup worthily, because if we do not, according to verse 29, one drinks, what does verse 29 say? For he who drink, eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my, brother, so then my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that he you will not come together for judgment. Remember, excuse me, the remaining matters I will arrange when I come. All right. Now, a lot of times I've heard sermons about this growing up, that if you drink the cup and eat the bread as an unbeliever, you might be judged or struck and dead, or that if you just do it in a cavalier manner, even as a believer, uh, you can be struck down or get sick. And I don't doubt that at all. Uh, and that's certainly included here. That's not the biggest main point here. Uh, what does verse 29 say? And the one who drinks and eats, eats and drinks judgment on himself if he does not judge the body rightly. What does that mean? What do you think that means, Mickey? Like, what's the body? The body of Christ. Very good. Yeah. 
And if we were sacramentalists, if we were in the Roman Catholic Church or the Greek Orthodox Church, we may want to equate the body rightly here with the bread and the wine themselves. Uh, but we aren't sacramentalists, and we shouldn't interpret the body, that word the body, in that way. Body is a fellowship term in Paul's language and thought. Community matters for Paul. I mean, and he got this from Jesus, because when Jesus struck him down with blindness on the way to Damascus, when he was going to arrest and kill some Christians, what did Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay, the body of Christ for Paul was kind of seared into his little blind eyeballs, and he got it, you know, he, it clicked for him. The body of Christ is his bride, the church on earth. Okay, so what Paul, when you're not considering or judging the body rightly, he's talking about the body of Christ, the church, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Community matters everywhere, but especially Christian covenant community matters in the context of prayer and communion and eating and drinking. The horizontal relationships between our brothers and sisters in Christ are where the love of God that we have for him is revealed in how we care for one another. And this is a consistent theme all through 1 Corinthians, not just chapter 11. So what I'm trying to say here is that in chapter 11, Paul is not shaking God's belt at you from up in heaven saying, take this communion seriously or get a spanking. You know, if anything, uh, Paul's shaking the belt at you and saying, Take your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ seriously, or get a spanking. You know, because communion for us is not just about drawing near to God in solemn repentance. It is that, and it should be that, but that's not all it should be. God is a hundred times more concerned that someone in our church family is going hungry with nothing than he is about how solemn we are. He's, Paul is infinitely more concerned here that one is hungry in verse 21 than he is that another person is drunk. I mean, if that guy that was eating and drinking way too much in his drunken excess, it led to him to share his bread and wine so that he was sharing at least as much with the hungry brothers and sisters, or brothers and sisters around him as he was you know, himself consuming and nobody else was, Paul would not even have mentioned his drunken excess. Now, don't get me wrong. One of the things that ruggedly individualistic, conservative American Christianity really does well is individual, personal, heartfelt repentance just directed up vertically, like vertically, to our living God. And I love that about our faith. I mean, O.E. Rolvag said something right. I like his author. I like his books. Uh, However, sometimes our greatest asset can be our greatest liability. And honestly, I just don't sit around the campfire and sing Kumbaya very well. You know, it's not natural for me as an American Christian to feel responsible or concerned for my fellow brothers and sisters. I see them on Sunday and then I go home. And I mean, this is kind of even... And it's easy to miss what Paul is saying here about our less fortunate or weaker brothers and sisters in the faith like he is in this passage. I mean, this is evidenced in the American worship service 
especially the charismatic kind, you know, and our, I mean, true, nowadays, our missionaries or charismatic missionaries have exported this brand of worship all over the world, especially Australia, which is why we have Hillsong. But it's only in an American-style worship service that you can get a bloody nose from your Christian neighbor because they are just so self, just self-absorbedly praising God that they're not even aware that you're there or just what their hands are doing. I mean, and our bodily behavior during an American worship service kind of shows where we're at. Ours is a very individual, individualistic Christianity if you look at the body of Christ throughout history in every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so it's easy for us to miss what Paul is driving at here. Now, Paul does not want us to throw away the sincere vertical relationship we have with God as one of repentance between me and the man upstairs. David says, against you alone only have I sinned in the Psalms, even though God knew full well that he had ruined the lives of everyone around him, and so did he. When Potiphar's wife went after Joseph, Joseph said, I cannot sin against the living God, you know, far be it from me. He wasn't going to do that. I mean, he knew he would, would be sinning against Potiphar too, but there is that. But it's easy when we're forgiving, repenting to God personally for our sins and then being forgiven eternally for those sins through the cross of Christ. It's easy, at least for me, to forget that those sins were by no means victimless crimes and that they always negatively affected the brothers and sisters in Christ if only because they hardened my heart a little, and then I wasn't able to love effectively. And I would say it's uniquely American for us in this land of plenty and opportunity to miss what Paul was saying here. At least it was for me. Paul is saying here that if you are really united vertically with Christ, if you have really repented and are walking in repentance you will be overwhelmingly concerned with the hungry brothers and sisters around you. You won't be getting drunk at the communion potluck after service. And this is perfectly natural because Paul's challenge to us today is just to do communion in both dimensions, vertically in, repent, in solemn repentance and horizontally with care and concern and love for our brothers and sisters around us. Because if the Jewish community then and the Jewish community now do anything right, it's they understand what it means to be a covenant community living as sojourning, as sojourning foreigners in a nation not their own. Jesus was a Jew. Uh, Paul was a Jew. And this is, why Paul, this is why Jesus said he laid down his life for the sheep, the community around him. And this is why Paul was adamant about collecting a king's ransom from these Greek believers in Corinth to give to the hungry Jewish Christian saints in Jerusalem. And what scandalizes Paul here in chapter 11 so bad is that in one of his own churches that he founded, in the richest city in the Roman world, the most prosperous, that there would be hungry fellow Christians during the after-church communion potluck. And, of course, the reason for that, as he says, is there, you know, within the church building, there are, in, in that covenant community, there are cliques were forming, and food, if it was being shared at all, was not being shared outside the clique. This is why verse 18 says there's divisions among you. 
And Paul is grieved because if he can't rely on Christians to share resources among each other horizontally in the same room, that means those Christians have no communion vertically with our Lord either and have not repented of just this dangerous me-first attitude or this insecure lack of faith in God to provide with us with resources tomorrow if we share what we have today. As another famous Jewish rabbi said, anyone who has bread in his basket for today but doubtfully asks, what am I going to eat tomorrow, is of little faith. And Jesus, in keeping with his Jewish tradition, says the same thing. We are the lilies of the valley. We are beautiful today, and we are going to be thrown in the fire tomorrow. But in spite of that, or even because of it, Jesus told us in his Sermon on the Mount to not worry about what we eat or drink, or even what we wear, because not one sparrow falls to the ground without the awareness of our Heavenly Father. And the birds neither sow nor reap anyway. Now, don't get me wrong. I love this community, and one of the things I first noticed about this beautiful community here is, that, is the way you love each other and the way you guys do after-church meals together. That brings my heart so much joy. From the moment I saw it, I love how everyone eats together. And I don't doubt for a sec that you guys cover each other when things are tight. That's not even worrisome in my mind. But what I am saying is I do believe that in the coming year, I can easily see how people who have never had to struggle before financially might struggle. I do believe that 2021 is going to be a year of surprises and upheavals for the body of Christ as a whole. And I can honestly see things breaking due to economic conditions or government persecution. I can see where we may find ourselves needing our Christian brothers and sisters in our immediate day-to-day lives and needing to rely on them in many ways, much more than we've ever had to anticipate relying on them before. Am I just crazy, or has anyone else thought that? Yeah, okay. And so what I'm saying is, at this first communion of the year, we don't need to be scared about this. We need to be encouraged, because there's so much more to life, living life that way. There's so much more joy in life in Christ, co-laboring with God to provide for the welfare of our brothers and sisters in these coming months and year. And it, I don't always mean money. I, I, I think it means money at the very least. Uh, maybe a couch. You know, but there's so many other resources like time and energy and presence uh, that I think in this coming future year, I think, this, I think we're entering a season of testing for the church. But in this season of testing, we are going to be boldly enabled to really love each other and show it and really become the Christian community that Christ always intended. In conclusion, the purpose of this message was to encourage and exhort and even challenge you to remember the horizontal half of communion today, your relationship with your brothers and sisters. And because I do think in the coming year we are going to need each other more than we ever have before. 
I want, you, I want to encourage you to take your, com- your commitment to your brothers and sisters in this covenant community seriously as you prepare to take communion. And I know this is harder during the coronavirus, which in my mind makes it seem all the more necessary and dear that we bear each other's burdens together and give of ourselves to them in the ways they need, even if it's just our time and companionship on the phone. And I ask this in your reflections before communion today to not just examine yourselves in your moment of silence, but, I mean, please continue to do that, the vertical part of communion and preparation that you always have, but please please continue to repent of the things you've done wrong and draw near to God that way. But don't just stop there. There are so many people in this church and we, are, we must be so concerned with the, with the coming needs of them in the coming season that I pray that God just lays on your heart who you need to especially care for and be particularly concerned about this season and also give you the joy to step into that ministry. There is so much more to life and peace and joy when we walk in God this way. Even in the midst of oppression or persecution. If God asks you, I mean, ask God if there's someone in your life or someone in this community or even outside of this community that you know you need to feel particularly responsible to be, dare we say, financially irresponsible with this year. Because there's nothing so liberating as when you walk with God this way. Test Him and see if there's anyone that he puts on your heart today. Because I truly believe that this, is, this challenge is an opportunity for us to walk through this year together. And let's truly do it together. This year, please ask God to reveal the hidden and silent longings and needs of your brothers and sisters' hearts around you. And then walk in fellowship with them for the rest of the year. Let's take communion because Jesus died so that we could have this sort of relationship with each other. I am reading from 1 Corinthians, and uh, here's how we're going to do it. Uh, I'm going to read the scripture, and then I'm going to get my communion open. I'm going to read the scripture, and then I will pray, and then I will take the bread, and... uh, Then we will move on to the cup. 1 Corinthians, Paul writes in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this representation of your body that you gave up for us willingly. It was your grace for us. It was your love for us. We are so grateful. We just ask that you reveal your presence to us today as we are taking this bread. In Jesus' name. Amen.
This was broken and shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. Verse 25. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Dear Heavenly Father, we sing songs and we sang songs today about how we are cleansed in your blood. And we know that's an allusion to your death, burial, and resurrection. Your godly redemptive acts towards us. We give you thanks as well for this, as well as you just daily and richly forgiving all all our sins for the sake of your son, Jesus. Father, we are so grateful that your son's blood was shed, and we're so grateful you raised him from the dead and that you're returning to us. And we're so grateful that you are here with us. Thank you for your sacrifice, dear Jesus. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is do this as a remembrance of me.